These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last time, we started into the great Canaanite epic following the adventures of the god Baal-Hadad, or just Baal for short. The portion we looked at last time featured an epic confrontation between Baal and the sea god Yam, which ultimately saw Baal victorious, even if the story was so badly damaged that we couldn't really make a whole lot of sense of what was going on. Things are still pretty damaged as we move into the middle section of the story, sometimes called the Feast of Baal, but much more is preserved from these tablets. Of course, the story is, in certain ways, so strange that simply having more context doesn't always help a whole lot, but that's fine. The joy here is simply experiencing the strangeness of a culture thousands of years removed from our own, while also realizing that the same sort of people who wrote these odd stories also provided the most important cultural context to the people who wrote the Hebrew Bible. Anyway, talking about context, I don't intend to give any more context today than I did for the last episode. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the strangeness of it all. Our story begins with a great feast. Now, if you believe that all these stories are related as part of one grand cycle, so to say, then this is the victory party that Baal is throwing after having just defeated Yam. If you think that these are completely unrelated, then this is a random party that Baal is throwing just because that's what the gods do. They throw constant parties. What else are they going to do? As usual, we've lost the very beginning, so we don't actually know who our opening character is. All we have is a bunch of descriptions of what he's doing. But what he is doing is kind of impressive. It seems, you see, he's serving the mighty Baal-Hadad, Lord of the Earth, God of the Storm, who sits at the head of his great banquet. While Baal sits and enjoys his feast, the narrator character is busy cutting the meat and offering it to the god, and then offering him a cup, which the servant has to hold in both hands, because this, now this is a container for mighty men, or male gods, because even the goddesses are not good enough to merely look at this mass, massive, manly, awesome wine cup of Baal. It takes a thousand pitchers of wine to fill this cup, maybe 10,000 pitchers, which sort of makes you wonder why they just don't have bigger pitchers, but whatever. And once Baal has been wined and dined, the servant, who is himself something of a hero apparently, grabs like a cymbal or a tambourine or something and starts singing a song of heroism for Baal. Then the camera shifts away from this random servant over to Baal, who's eyeing his daughters. These are Pidre and Tale, the daughters of light and rain. He's wondering how they will make great brides, possibly for a guy named Pidru, and then we lose the story again. When we come back, the party has been left behind, and something far more exciting is going on. The goddess Anat is putting on makeup and perfume with seven maids. 
Now, we only see the very end of this divine makeup session because she's getting up and walking out the door of her house, which is up on top of a mountain because that's where the gods live, on top of mountains. So, she's walking down the mountain where she meets a crowd of youths armed to the teeth. In that valley, Annette fights a great battle between some two towns. One town is the people of the seashore, another town is the people of the sunrise. And remember the geographical context here, for pretty much everyone in Canaan and the wider Levant, the seashore is to the west, and of course the sun rises in the east. It seems that these two cities have gotten in such a battle that Anat herself has come down to wade among the fighting and slaughter both sides, probably just for the joy of killing. After all, surely a god prancing around a mortal battle is about as much fun as a mortal playing a video game. At her feet, heads roll, and it's like she's wading through a ball pit. Above her, the sky is filled with hands, warrior hands. She's slicing off people's hands so vigorously and quickly that they are filling the air like locusts as they pop off of one arm after another. When she gets a moment, she takes the heads and sticks them in her backpack and ties the hands to her belt. The valley is filled to knee-depth in blood, and somehow she's wading neck-deep in just gore and viscera. And anyone who wants to surrender and be a prisoner gets beaten with a club. Anyone who flees gets an arrow in the back with her bow. Uh, finally, there can hardly be anyone left after her massive destructive orgy, and so Anat returns to her house. Remember how in previous episodes I noted that she was primarily a goddess of passion more than of warfare? And we do see that here. She has no tactics, no heroism, no great contest between equals. Anat, in the sphere of warfare, is the goddess of brutality and bloodlust. The idea that many modern folks have is that the gods of polytheistic religions all fit neatly into god of slots. God of war, god of the sea, god of wisdom, god of beauty, and so forth. And while there is certainly an element of truth to that, the gods did, after all, tend to have realms associated with them. The gods were primarily considered to exist in reference to personalities and relationships. And when we abandon that framework and focus on our little checkbox framework developed by modern people who are centuries or millennia removed from active pagan worship, we misunderstand so much about myth. Which, incidentally, is why I generally try to avoid describing gods in that way. Um, though, of course, I am forced to occasionally. Anyway, Anat the passionate daughter, walks back into her house, literally dripping with blood and with grisly trophies hanging off her attractive clothing. But there is a problem. Even though she spent all afternoon in the business of killing, 
she remains unsated. And so she calls together all the soldiers of these two warring towns, or presumably all the ones she hasn't just slaughtered, and arranges tables and chairs for them all. Note this well. Baal had a feast, and servants did all the work, while he sat around thinking about his daughters. Annette, also a major deity, but a female one, is said to do the drudge work of setting up a feast, because even if the attendants are merely mortal, they are men. Anyway, this whole feast is a big trick. All the participants are goaded into fighting even more, and there is yet another slaughter. Amidst this second round of passionate battle, Annette's innards swell with laughter, and her heart fills with joy. It's strongly suggested, through the imagery and language used, though not stated explicitly, that she is eating the people who have come to attend her feast. Now, this is all delightfully gruesome and would surely make an exciting Hollywood film, but certainly at a certain point we must ask ourselves, is this actually a metaphor for the horrors of war? To give you a sense, now that our goddess is sated with violence, there is the following denouement. Warrior blood is wiped from the house. Oil of peace is poured in a bowl. The girl Annette washes her hands. The in-laws of the people wash her fingers. She washes her hands in warrior blood. She washes her fingers in the blood of soldiers. Then she arranges chairs with chairs, tables with tables, footstools with footstools. Now, does that sound metaphorical to you? I'm no expert, but to my ear, it sounds both literal and metaphorical at the same time, a mode that is far from uncommon in stories both ancient and modern. It's hard not to compare it to pretty much the only other great corpus of Canaanite literature that survives to this day, the Hebrew Bible, where we have stories that also feature fantastical elements which many will insist, are literal depictions, such as Jonah and the whale, Noah and the flood, or Job and his trials. But at the same time, whether you see these tales as literal or fantastical, there's also a metaphorical meaning alongside the action. In this case, it's pretty clearly a metaphorical description of the horrors of war, and possibly also a theological piece about anats, or perhaps passions, role in conflict. But it's also an actual, literal part of the story. Annette has just killed some people. That matters for what comes next. Because whatever's going on here, Annette now, now she takes a shower. Then she puts makeup on, a ton of purple dye cosmetic made from the Murex snail, which is really gross. Like it's kind of one thing to dye some clothes with snail juice. It's another thing to apply snail directly to the forehead. Once she beautifies herself and gets dressed, she grabs her lyre and begins to play and sing a religious hymn. This one in celebration of the love of Baal and his three daughters, Pidre, Tale, and Arce, the light, showers, and the wide world. While she's busy singing, Baal, over at his feast, grabs some messengers and sends them over to young Annette. 
And I should mention, the title for Anat is apparently really hard to translate. I've seen it as Girl Anat or Adolescent Anat, but it's pretty clearly something that some word we just don't have in English, meant to emphasize the youth and the beauty of the goddess. All these gods, they have epithets. Baal is always called Mighty Baal or Mightiest Baal in some, in some tablets, while El is often called the Father. Anyway, the message from Baal is that Anat needs to quit having wars all the time. She needs to take all her war and bury it, then fill the fields with peace and tranquility instead. But he isn't just going to demand this of her with no reward. She needs to run over to Ball's palace as quick as possible once she's put an end to war. It seems Ball has deep secrets, possibly Deep secrets which he learned before the battle with Yam. Secrets which even heaven and earth are ignorant of. But if Anat hurries over, Baal will whisper the secret to her. Now, Anat's chilling at her place when she suddenly senses the approach of these messengers and has a most peculiar reaction. Her feet shake. Her loins tremble, her face sweats, the joints of her loins convulse, and her back grows weak. Now, what on earth kind of reaction that is supposed to be to some messengers of Baal? Whatever her emotional state, she's clearly very passionate, as befits the passionate goddess, and she starts shouting at the messengers even before they can open their mouth. She's upset, it seems. She's demanding to know what great enemy rises up against Baal, the Cloud Rider. Honestly, she seems a bit indignant that she's being bothered again. After all, she says she's already fought Yam, the god of rivers and seas. She bound someone named Tunan and destroyed him as well. But also, she fought the seven-headed twisty serpent, who actually might be Tunan. Some of the translations are a little bit difficult. She battled against a god named Arush and fought against some divine rebel. She fought against Fire, the dog of El, and Flame, the daughter of El, and did all of this just for the promise of gold and silver. Now, were all these parts of the great battle that are missing from the tale of Baal and Yam, or are these recounting many different exploits of Anat, or, in fact, does this whole tablet actually belong in some other epic cycle and just got stuck in here uh, for whatever editorial reason? We just don't know. Anyway, she asks if Baal has sent away his corrupt courtier, who's surely plotting some treachery against him. The messengers, however, report that Baal is not currently under attack, and in fact things are so peaceful that Baal wants Anat to stop doing so much war all the time. They then repeat Baal's promise to teach her a secret word of power if she'll hurries over to Baal's palace. And with seemingly no fuss at all, Anat pretty much just agrees and does what Baal tells her. She puts an end to her wars and dashes over to Baal's place atop the mountain of Sapan. 
then pauses just long enough to put on a ton of makeup while Ball honors her by offering a sacrifice of an ox. Why the gods sacrifice to each other is a bit unclear, but also kind of neat. I don't know. Anyway, while Ball has Anat's ear, he basically just whines a whole bunch, saying, Oh, woe is me. I want a giant palace with plenty of space for my three beautiful daughters. Baal wants Anat to go over to El to get divine permission from the Father of Gods for Baal to have a nice palace. And Anat agrees, heading right over to El and repeating Baal's endless, pointless whining over not having a giant palace. At the end of column four, before the last little bit cuts off, Annette is asking very nicely, saying, May Bull El, my father, heed me. May he heed me. Then, when the text comes back at the top of column five, with very little missing, already she's transitioned in mood, saying about the divine father El, I will drag him like a lamb to the ground. I will make his gray hair run red with blood. The gray of his beard will be splattered with gore unless he gives Baal a house of the gods and a court like the other high gods. Then Annette stomps her feet and the earth shakes and she struts right back out of El's palace. At first, El tries to equivocate. But Anat, who, despite having just left the palace, is still there, and threatens to smash his head open and cover him with his own blood. El gives a big sigh and says the same thing he said in yesterday's story, that no one can resist her when she's in one of her moods and gives in to her request. Anat is now quite happy and insists that all the gods must celebrate mighty Baal as their king and that everyone will bring him a gift. The news makes it pretty quickly over to Baal, and Baal grabs some messengers and sends them over to Kothar Wachasis, the divine craftsman who lives over in Egypt. Now these messengers basically repeat everything that's happened so far, because ancient audiences love repetition in much the same way that a toddler will watch the same Disney movie over and over again without ever getting sick of it, then gets to the point. Baal would like a palace. And also, Lady Athirat, also sometimes called Asherah, the wife of El, would like a gift. Kothar goes straight to work, casting thousands of shekels of silver and tens of thousands of shekels of gold. He makes a couch with a fancy canopy and a massive dais with gold and silver and a grand throne with a grand footstool and even some gold-covered sandals and a table full of tiny figurines, little toy animals of all sorts. Kothar is pretty quick at his work, but all this takes, you know, a bit of time. And in the meanwhile, our story shifts over to Athirat, who is at home doing domestic chores. Specifically, Athirat is doing some weaving, and her weaving is described very much in water-related terms. Her robe is like two flowing rivers and so forth. Then she makes an offering in proper service to El the Beneficent, who created all things. 
After she does these two things for a while, she looks up and notices that, oh, here comes Ball. But it isn't just Ball coming up. Anna is with him, as are a bunch of people, apparently. Athirat, who is apparently in the general faction of El and Yam, freaks out. Her loins convulse, which is just the strangest turn of phrase, and she shouts at them demanding to know why they have come and who among her family they intend to kill this time. But Baal and Anat are not here to start trouble, at least not today. And indeed, they have gifts for Athirat, which are so nice to look at that Athirat's eyes start to glow silver and gold just from the reflection of the piles of wealth that they drop before her. Well, Athirat quite likes presents and starts monologuing for a while about just how great she is. And then eventually, Ball and Anat are able to explain why they've come. Ball is explaining previous events, letting us know either that Yam had a debauched feast where he was exceedingly rude to Ball, with apparently quite a lot of lewd maidens in attendance, which would explain somehow why Ball was forced to kill him, or perhaps some other fellow has been rude to Ball in the same way. Whatever the case, we've lost a lot of context here. At the end of this explanation, though, Atheret basically stands up and asks, Why are you telling me all this? If you have some kind of grievance, why aren't you taking it to El, the creator of all creatures? And they basically say that, well, they do have a plan to go talk to El about these matters, but that they really want Athirat to help out. If Athirat throws a huge feast, then maybe El would be in a good mood when Ball goes to have a chat with him. She appears to ultimately agree to help Ball, and they all go their separate ways to prepare for the feast. Athirat grabs her servant, Kudsh Wa Amrar, and gives him a bunch of instructions, including a delightful order to, quote, prepare the ropes of my ass. Meaning, of course, her donkey. Once the ropes have been prepared for her ass, Athirat sits on her donkey and rides it to El's palace. Now, this is really interesting. Just how old is this story? Odds are that the written version was put to clay sometime in the final century of the Bronze Age, the 1200s BCE. And by this point, horses were pretty common for use among nobility, but only for chariots and such. But if Athirat, a queen of the gods, is riding in the back of a mule, well, what does that mean? Now, it's important to remember that in the Bronze Age, almost no one rode horses for any reason. It took centuries of selective breeding for even very light messengers to start riding horses around the end of the Bronze Age, and actual cavalry is something we'll start seeing experimented with once we get much further on. Instead, the prestige mode of transportation for much of the late Bronze Age was for nobles to ride around in chariots. Now, there are two possibilities here. We might be looking at an incredibly ancient story, one that actually predates the introduction of horses into the region altogether. 
If we take this as a chronological marker, then the story must be at least 400 years old by the time it's being written down, and could well run all the way to the earliest days of Canaan, nearly a thousand years before. Alternately, however, it could just be a gendered thing, that women simply didn't associate with chariots at this time. Not even noble queens, perhaps, could ride in chariots. Now, I say the second thing, and I'm not completely sure that it's true. Is there really no mention of a mortal queen, or especially a goddess of war like Ishtar or Anat, riding a chariot? I've tried to search, and I can't actually find any mentions of any women riding chariots, but I'm really not sure on this. I don't have a full university library on hand, uh, just my own little uh, search places. It seems to me much more likely that this is an anachronism in the story, something appropriate to a much earlier time than what was being written, Though I will gladly confess that I may be mistaken on this point, and it may in fact just be a gendered thing, or even a third possibility that Atherat may have some obscure connection with donkeys in general, in much the same way that many gods had sacred animals back in the old days. Anyway, moving on from Atherat's ass... Anat and Atherat both get to this feast at El's house at around the same time. El, quite charmingly, asks Athirat why she has come. Is it to enjoy the food and drink of the party, or is it because she's aroused for El's love? Like, he straight up just asks, Does the hand of El the king excite you? Does the love of the bull arouse you? The bull here being El. Athirat pretty well sidesteps the question, after all, there was no Bronze Age Me Too movement, and gets right to her point. She first praises El's wisdom, but then gives a nice little speech about how Mighty Ball is the king of the gods, and everyone gives him presents all the time, but El, the father of all, has not given Ball the gift of a palace. Now, El seems a bit mixed in his reaction, initially upset, asking if he's some sort of slave to be handling tools and molding mud bricks to build a house. But then, without any transition, he just agrees that, yeah, he should cause a house to be built for Ball. Unsurprisingly, Athirat responds to El's agreement with flattery of El, who is so very wise, instructed by the gray hair of his beard for some reason, and complimenting the softness and length of his beard. She then goes on to even more praise of Ball and calls on Ball to start gathering the finest materials for building his house. You may wonder why he needs to be told this, but this is a literary convention of many ancient writings. They don't really want to tell you that Ball does these things for some reason, so they put in some odd dialogue here where Athirat is telling Ball that he should do these things. It sounds super odd to my ears, but I'm sure the ancients would raise some eyebrows at some modern literary conventions in turn, like our odd insistence in most stories to emphasize that the characters achieve results 
through their own hard work and determination, and not through the dictates of divine fate? If you think that this latter is not a literary convention, just a reflection of reality, then you're not going to understand how the truly alien people of Canaan actually live their lives from day to day. Anyway, apparently Ball wasn't actually at the party, relying on others to persuade El on his behalf. Maybe he was worried that he was gonna get beaten up if he showed up at El's party. So Anna is super excited and rushes over to Ball to tell him the good news. Ball rejoices and grabs a bunch of nice gold and wood and stuff and calls Kothar the craftsman out from Egypt. When Kothar arrives, Ball presents an offering of an ox before him and then goes back to sit on his throne and watches Kothar does all the work. Things start pretty smoothly, but after, like, seven days, uh, Kothar comes up to Ball and says, Hey, Ball, I noticed that the designs for the palace don't actually have any windows. Isn't this going to be super unpleasant to live in? Ball replies that Kothar must not install any windows in his palace. Maybe he's more of a Linux guy. Kothar repeats and asks why, and Ball again says, just don't do it. The second time, though, he explains that he doesn't want his daughters to be spat on or peeked at while they are in the shower, seeming to imply that windows are nothing more than opportunities for young women to be sexually immoral. And Kothar pretty much just goes along with this. Soon enough, after seven days, the palace is finished, and on the seventh day, a fire is set in the central hearth, which burns for seven days. The fire comes and, like, takes over the entire house. It consumes the entire house, and you'd think the whole thing's about to get burned down, but no. Instead of getting burned down, all the building materials are transformed into much finer, refined building materials. And now, Ball has an entire house built out of divine silver and gold. And what a better way to celebrate a new house than with a grand feast, which is described in language that is simultaneously splendidly opulent and pointlessly dull. As the capstone of this mighty feast, where he receives an extensive list of gifts from all the gods, Baal then immediately trots down to the mortal world and captures 90 cities as part of a grand parade-slash-invasion. Now that he's king of both heaven and the earth, he goes back to his throne. And now that Baal is sitting safely on his royal throne, his very first command is to Kothar the craftsman, telling him that, actually, he thinks he would like a window in his palace after all. Kothar's reply, literally, is, I told you so. At which point Kothar laughs and carves out a window, or probably a couple of windows. Now, this palace is up on a mountain, so when Ball goes to stand at the open window, he can see for miles away, and he's able to issue commands to the entire world. As Ball opens his mouth to speak, the heavens tremble, and the earth shakes at his words. 
the clouds part so that nothing will obstruct his speech or vision, and he issues a command upon the earth. That command, however, is the opening of the next section in the ball cycle. Now, these first two parts have been strange, but it is good to remember that the people of the ancient world thought in strange ways and understood stories in strange ways. After all, for all that our multicultural society tries to plaster over difference, people in different societies around the world, when you really dig into it, have some astonishingly strange and unique ways of perceiving the world. The fact that these stories have been coherent and that you can visualize the action in your mind's eye is proof of our common humanity. But the fact that you have to ask yourself what on earth is going on in these stories is proof that this humanity is a much wider umbrella than we often like to consider. Anyway, I shouldn't be preaching, especially since the people most in need of considering this sort of thing are the people most likely to assume that I'm talking about someone else's mindset. But such is life. Join us next time for the explosive final confrontation of the ball cycle, where an even more baffling set of events occurs that will leave you feeling hollow, cheated, and confused. Thank you for listening.